Hello, Steve, and welcome to Set Phasers to Stun. Hi, Nick. Today, we're here to have a bit of a chat about where exactly the line lies between science and magic and science fiction. So, in a broad sense, what are your thoughts? Well, it's not so much a case of where the line lies as to where the line ought to lie. And I think that's going to be very much an individual choice. So I suspect that you and me may have different ideas on this. I'm sure people listening will have different ideas on this. But we can sort of toss things around and see if we agree and if we don't. And then listeners can make up their own minds, I guess. I've written a few things down in front of me here. One in a column, good, and one in a column, bad. Now, they're both those words with inverted commas around them, because, as I said, I think this is kind of in the eye of the beholder. And there are other reasons as well, I put that, which perhaps I'll come back to later. In my own head, good means stuff that completely agrees with scientific experience as we know it now and things where a sort of pseudoscience explanation is offered for what is going on. Now, it might be complete rubbish. It might be based in some truth and extrapolated from where we are. I don't really care. I don't really mind. But as long as some effort is made to explain what is happening and what's going on, what the technology is, how it works, blah, 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 then I'm happy. On the bad side, um, I have things where no such explanation is offered. Um, no such explanation is attempted, or in some cases, if it's given and it's so completely beyond physical reality as to be ridiculous. And I'll give some examples of that perhaps a little bit later on as well. Now, I'm drawing the line here between magic and fantasy, because obviously there's another genre we could talk about, which is fantasy, um, all to do with things like dragons and magic and so on. And that's fine. That's a thing that's self-consistent as much as it wants to be in itself, in as much as dragons exist, spells exist, all of that kind of thing. And that's great. That's a genre of its own right with its own rules. But when we come to science fiction, I guess what we're doing here is making sure that it's science fiction and not magic fiction. It's whether we're happy with it or we're not happy with it as scientists or indeed as general watchers, because stuff that I'm not happy with, perhaps other people will be. A question for you first. Would you say then that it doesn't constitute, air quotes, good science fiction if the science is generally consistent with real life, but they don't make the effort to explain that it is or why it is consistent? I don't mind that. I can see why others, particularly practicing scientists, of which I am actually one, wouldn't like it, though. From my own point of view, I don't mind because in a way that's not assuming that the audience is ignorant of the science. The writer or writers are assuming there that the audience is already on board with the science. Um, you could say that perhaps it's failing in a duty, if it has such a duty, to educate people about the science. But that can get too preachy and boring. I remember some examples from my childhood of children's programmes that would be like that, um, excluding Doctor Who from that list. We will certainly come to that later. But several children's programmes that were around at the time were certainly guilty of such things. And because of that, they were really boring. So I don't mind that they don't fully explain the science as long as it's consistent. If they do, great, but let's not be preachy about it. 
and I really like a good pseudoscience thing that kind of stimulates my brain. And I've certainly got some good examples of those to talk about. And I definitely agree with that, because the last thing that you want is for it to become such good science that it loses good fiction by becoming a lecture. Absolutely. And, and this touches on something I was hoping we'd come through rather later as more of a conclusion, um, which is that should we let this kind of distinction stand in the way of a good story? And my contention is going to be that from my point of view, it's a definer of what's a good story. But again, that's going to be an individual's point of view. And I don't want to get in the way of writer's freedom or showrunner's freedom or anything. Excellent. So we can come to that. But why don't you tell us a few of your examples? What constitutes good and bad science in terms of existing media? OK, well, should we do some good first then? Let's look at Doctor Who. That's the programme we're probably both of us most familiar with, although I know you're a bit of a Trekkie as well, and I will be using some examples from Star Trek too. You may recall that back in the 1960s, the makers of Doctor Who, particularly the then producer Innes Lloyd, was concerned to get some scientific reality into the show. So he actually took on board a scientist, a real scientist, as an advisor. don't know if the guy was paid, but he did do that, and there were some rather spectacular results from that. That's Dr. Kit Pedler, of course, who in fact was an electron microscopist at the University of London. He was in the Institute of Ophthalmology, bizarrely, but um, he formed a great writing partnership with Jerry Davis, who was the script editor of the show at the time. This is about 1966. And they came up with a number of concepts, mostly involving intelligent machines, first of which was the war machine, which one could argue prefigured the internet. The basic story, spoilers ahead, folks, but it was shown in 1966, so why haven't you seen it yet? The real story here was that a computer called Votan was connected to all of the computers in the world and was going to take them over and rule the world accordingly. And for some bizarre reason, best known to itself, it also had a bunch of hypnotized humans who were building these tank-like machines called war machines, which would storm through the streets and knock over cardboard boxes. Now, Kit Pedler was behind the idea of the internet in that show. Uh, I'm calling it the internet, but the idea of connected computers coming up with some larger intelligence. That was actually quite prescient, I think. And because of the success of that story, he came up with another idea, in which Jerry Davis converted into the 10th planet. And that, of course, introduced the Cybermen, second most successful monsters in Doctor Who by popular belief. And they were humans from another planet who slowly replaced their body parts with cybernetic parts, i.e. artificial limbs, artificial organs and so on and eventually lost their humanity. But they still, in various iterations of the show, had parts of humans inside them. Now, this is an idea which wasn't really novel then, but it was the first time it was certainly done in any mass science fiction idea, and has been much imitated since. Star Trek Borg, I'm looking at you, although in different ways and with different themes. The Borgs are much more body horror, really, than the Cybermen used to be, anyway, although they've become more so in, in recent years. So Kit Pedler was also behind that idea, which is a, a very interesting extrapolation of things like transplant surgery and artificial limbs and so on, artificial intelligence, ultimately, as well. So 
Kit Peddler was a, a successful scientific input, if you like, to those early days of Doctor Who. And he and his writing partner, Jerry Davis, left the show and then came up with another show with the initials DW called Doom Watch, which was very successful in the early 1970s on the BBC. Lasted for three years. Uh, they were only involved with the first two of those years. But nonetheless, uh, the idea of this was an organisation under the British government, a civil service organisation called Doom Watch. These scientists in Doom Watch were looking for examples of science gone bad, if you like. So where the results of applications of new developments in science and technology were causing some kind of problems, serious problems in many cases. So things like a virus, an artificial virus escaped, which eats plastic and was causing plastic things to fall apart, planes to crash and so on. Another one was uh, rats that became too intelligent with augmented intelligence and so on. This lasted for three years and was very popular. I suspect it would be again if it were brought back now, although it may be considered a little bit nearer the knuckle. But nonetheless, each episode was again based on an extrapolation of science as it was at the time, and therefore was, was very interesting and very, very good stuff, intriguing for scientists and for non-scientists alike, I think, to watch. It got a peak of 13 and a half million viewers, which these days would be unthinkable. So those are good examples. As I said, I do like pseudoscience as well, where something is perhaps a little bit nonsense, but nonetheless, a reasonable effort is made to explain them. So let's take the TARDIS in Doctor Who, for example. Everybody knows the TARDIS is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And you get some general wanderings from the Doctor about, oh, of course, that's, it's dimensionally transcendental. What on earth does that mean? Don't just leave it at that. Well, in a 1977 Doctor Who, where the fourth Doctor had just picked up a new assistant called Leela from a primitive planet, she asks the Doctor what's going on because it's so much bigger on the inside than the outside. So he puts a small model TARDIS, obviously taken from the BBC Special Effects Department, on the TARDIS console and then puts another one onto her hand, right next to her, obviously, and says, so... What if you could put that, he says, pointing to the distant TARDIS, inside the one next to you? Because you could fit an awful lot more in, couldn't you? So the idea is that dimensional transcendentalism is the fact that the huge insides of the TARDIS can be fit inside something that's actually quite small, but closer up to you. That kind of makes sense in your head why that would work. I mean, it's still nonsense, but it sort of helps you to see, well, the insides of the TARDIS are in a different place than the outside. Therefore, they can be so much bigger, right? They're in different dimensions. So that makes sense. So I'm going to put that as a nice piece, a good piece of pseudoscience, if you like. Going over to Star Trek, one of the big key things in Star Trek is the transporter, of course. So people can beam down and beam up to planets and other starships and so on. How does this work? You know, surely you don't have bodies sort of completely atomized in one place and then constructed atom by atom in the other. But they mumble sometimes about something called a pattern buffer and talk about wave functions being stored and transmitted. That kind of makes sense because atoms, subatomic particles, have wave particle duality. They are, in fact, wave functions that are described by mathematical equations. I suppose, theoretically, you could break a body down into its individual wave functions. There'd be an awful lot of them, 
but nonetheless it could be done and you could beam those wave functions or data about it from one place to another. It would take an awful long time on current bandwidth and then reassemble them at the other end or restart the wave functions at the other end. So you can kind of see a bit of pseudoscience going on behind it. So I'm quite happy to accept the transporters. And they do actually address this concept of what the transporter does and whether in fact you are the same person at the other end once you've been beamed over and reassembled. And it's a big factor in the original series because Dr. McCoy is terrified of the transporter and hates it. And that's why, because he doesn't believe he comes out the same person at the other end. And his other contention is, how do you know you've got it all right at the other end, which to a certain degree is provable. I mean, you can scan the body, make sure that yeah, everything looks the same as it did when it went in. But his concern is a deeper one, which is, how do you know my mind, or in his case, my soul, is the same at the other end? And that's much harder to prove. Uh, well, there are any number of Star Trek and uh, spin-off type plots where the transporter accidents happen. I think there's even a whole Voyager episode where two of the characters get merged into one, and there's certainly at least one where Captain Kirk in the original series gets split up into a good one and a bad one any number of possibilities there for writers, which is great. But I like the pseudoscience behind that, so you can kind of understand why that's the case. Another more recent good example of pseudoscience is in a, a Tenth Doctor, Doctor Who story, um, the Lazarus experiment, where a guy who's trying to reverse his aging, reverse um, his body clock, if you like, back to being young again, and what he actually manages to do is, allegedly, waken up some dormant DNA into his system and turns into some horrific monster, which is like an amalgam of all kinds of more primitive creatures like scorpions, dinosaurs, and God knows what else. And, and then he climbs up to the top of Gloucester Cathedral and falls off it or something like that. But nonetheless, again, there's an effort made there with pseudoscience to explain why this Professor Lazarus turns into the monster and where the monster comes from. So I, I do like that. That's kind of satisfying to me. Absolutely. And it is true that there is DNA in our genome that we don't fully understand and whose function may or may not still be relevant today. And of course, there's plenty of DNA whose function is only relevant in a subset of tissues or a subset of cells. But you've actually touched on one of my favorite examples of good and bad science in the sense that, yes, some of the foundational principles on which that episode is based are true, but also some of them are just beyond the pale. There is not a dormant scorpion sitting inside every one of our genomes. And actually, it's one of my favorite things to talk about with respect to the science of Doctor Who, because I've thought about it for quite a long time. And the most plausible explanation for the strange scorpion creature, is that clearly in some way in that machine, his DNA has become fused with that of the mites living in his eyebrows. Only explanation. Or lies elsewhere on his body. Well, we won't go into that. You can probably edit that out if you want to. I kind of don't want to. <laughs> but yes, I see exactly what you mean about that. Um, of course, we're not on a direct line of descendants from scorpions or arachnids generally, are we? But yeah, I suppose you could argue that perhaps they went far back enough and there's some evolution going on in other branches. And you can you can you can make it work. As you said, it's good pseudoscience and sometimes 
you need that kind of flexibility to make a good story. A mutual friend of ours, Gary Russell, who used to work on Doctor Who as a script editor um, some years ago, he would occasionally get in touch with me to come up with some kind of pseudoscience to make something work in the show. Unfortunately, none of them actually got into scripts that were in the transmitted versions, <laughs> but at least they were clearly thinking about it. I mean, my favourite one was something that eventually became The Waters of Mars, um, where Gary asked me about, well, could water be intelligent in some way? Could you have some kind of network forming in water with neurons and things like that? So I talked to him about hydrogen bombs and never heard anything about it again, because I guess perhaps there was a version of the script that had it in, and Russell T. Davis said, no, that's boring, let's leave it out. And I don't blame him, because, again, maybe that would have been a bit too much. Um, they had some stuff in about, oh, maybe this is why the Ice Warriors left Mars instead, uh, which was quite good, it was quite good stuff. As long as an effort is made to explain it, I think it's good fun. It's good fun, and it's kind of intriguing. You think, oh, you know, I wonder what would happen if... It kind of stimulates your own ideas with your own science and your own stuff, really, doesn't it? There's lots of it in Doctor Who and in Star Trek, in fact. But we do have some examples on the other side of the coin as well, don't we? Bad ones. Shall we get bitchy and talk about those? Yes. Let's talk about all the science fiction we love to hate. Right. Well, I have three particular examples. And uh, two are in Doctor Who and one is in Star Trek. Both the Doctor Whos are actually, rather sadly, from the same era of the show, from the same series. Um, the first of them is Kill the Moon, where, spoilers folks, if you haven't watched any Peter Capaldi Doctor Who, switch off now. Actually don't, because Mick don't want you to. Kill the Moon is the first episode, which I'm going to criticise here, because after about half an hour of really good, tense stuff, where in the near future, a space shuttle has crashed on the moon and some kind of strange spider-like creatures are experienced there and start killing people and so on. It all goes a bit peak-tong, and we learn in the end that the moon is an egg, and it hatches, and it gives birth to some huge space dragon, which immediately lays another egg, exactly the same as the moon, and exactly the same size, with exactly the same gravity, which takes the place of the old moon here. Now, I wonder how many rules of science we've broken there without bothering to try to explain it at all. It's such a shame because the episode starts out so well, but then it just goes completely bonkers. And I despair of that episode because of that. It's a great shame, great shame. Now, the other one later that year is called In the Forests of the Night. Um, that was written by a well-known children's writer called Frank Cottrell Boyce. So, In the Forests of the Night, uh, suddenly all the trees on the earth take it over and grow into a jungle. Well, okay, fine. It happens very suddenly and quickly. Creatures inhabit those jungles that uh, weren't there before. And suddenly there's some burst of energy from the sun that switches them all off and they all suddenly disappear and all those buildings that have been damaged aren't damaged anymore and everything goes back to normal. And again, little effort. There's not quite no effort made here. Um, I think the Peter Capaldi doctor does make some talk about ice ages and so on, which is completely scientifically inaccurate. Science is mentioned, but not treated very well. 
Yeah, so that episode really annoys me because that really is magic, if you like. There, we have jumped over the line completely from science into magic. What effort is made to try and explain what's happening scientifically is totally inaccurate in the most fundamental ways. So that one, I'm afraid, also is on my um, my hit list of Doctor Who episodes. There aren't many, but that is one of them. And I said that that and Kill the Moon are perhaps the two most egregious in the entire 60 years history of the show, which is a shame. They were both in the same year as well. That's never been repeated, I have to say, since then. So since then, we've had pseudoscience back. Now, in Star Trek, Star Trek generally, I have a lot of time for in the scientific department. It definitely tries much more to be scientifically literate, particularly when it comes to astronomy. So Star Trek The Next Generation was almost like an astronomy textbook sometimes. Although there was one particular episode which made me roll my eyes, and that's one called Night Terrors. There's a long story behind this, but the crew of the Enterprise all start having nightmares. And only, of course, Councillor Troy is the only one who could really rationalise all of these. Um, the Enterprise is stuck in some region of space and can't get out. But she keeps having this recurring nightmare of floating in space and seeing one planet going round one sun, nothing else, just one planet going round one sun. And of course, we see this episode, we see this nightmare depicted on screen. She explains her nightmare to Commander Data. And Data, being the super intelligent brain the size of a planet android that he is, immediately recognises that one planet going round one sun means hydrogen. So that's the answer to all their problems. Hydrogen. And in fact, the Enterprise vents a load of hydrogen into space and sets fire to it. Well, there's another scientific problem for you. And gets blown out of this, this null region of space where it's become stranded. Well, <laughs> the idea of one planet, i.e. electron, going in a circular orbit around one sun, a nucleus, proton in this case, is a depiction of a hydrogen atom that students at GCSE don't do anymore. It's so simple. So why is some super intelligent alien race, it turns out that some super intelligent alien race has communicated this escape plan to Commander Troy. Why has she come up with that? Probably because the super intelligent alien race quite rightly doesn't think of us as a particularly bright race. Well, you can't blame it for that. They've dumbed it down for us. Well, that's true. But you see, super intelligent android data immediately recognises this. Surely he'd be so far advanced he wouldn't recognise that depiction of a hydrogen atom, just one planet going around one sun representing one electron going around one proton. And of course, hydrogen exists as H2 anyway. It's two protons bound together with two electrons going around them in, in a wave function. Electrons are really wave function. And they have all kinds of oddly shaped orbitals and stuff like that. Although in the case of hydrogen, they're only spherical. But anyway. And in any event, they're all probabilities and not actually defined orbits to begin with. Indeed, yeah. They're wave functions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I do have to say, they are right about one thing. I would have a lot more problems in the sudden and complete absence of hydrogen. Uh, well, that's certainly true, yes. I mean, that would be the end of the universe as we know it, wouldn't it? And indeed, it'd be much, much smaller as well. 
this is something like 99.9% of all mass in the universe is, is hydrogen, something like that. That's something I have to look up. Me too. So I think that's an example of science attempting to be used and falling flat on its backside. And for me, again, it was quite an atmospheric episode, but it, it just sort of ruined it for me. Atmospheric episode. Yeah. Oh, hydrogen atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Although for anyone listening, it's approximately 73% of the visible universe that's hydrogen, 25% helium and everything else 2%. Right. Okay. So there's less hydrogen than I thought. Well, well, well. It does say visible universe. Yeah. Is that the mass though as well? Because that would mean, of course, there are many, many more hydrogen atoms there being so light. Yes, it is the mass. So in terms of numerical proportions... It's going to be at least twice that as well. You can't have twice 73%, but you know what I mean. It's going to be uh, halfway between 73 and 100%. So yes, uh, it's still the overwhelming majority, certainly a large majority of it. The other Star Trek that um, upsets me scientifically is Star Trek Discovery, which is quite modern. And this is the first series of it, specifically, where we have the spore drive. I do not understand the spore drive and the pseudoscience behind that at all. The mycelial network that sort of pervades subspace and, and either this rather large tardigrade creature or the discoveries engineer can find his way around it. I don't, I just don't get that. I think that's, that to me was a step, maybe not too far, but, you know, certainly sort of hovering over the edge, if you like. I did enjoy Star Trek Discovery, I have to say, very much so, particularly that first series, but mostly because of the Camp Mirror Universe stuff and not because of the Spore Drive. I could forgive the Spore Drive because of Michelle Yeoh, and that's about it. I admit I didn't enjoy Star Trek Discovery, mostly because of the writing involved. It was visually beautiful, and I think the Spore Drive is part of that. I think science was sacrificed on the altar of... It looks cool. And also, I do think they were pushing into science fantasy there, which isn't really the direction most Star Trek fans expect the show to take. Well, what we haven't talked about is time travel. Despite the fact we talked about Doctor Who, which is based in time travel, Star Trek, which employs time travel on a very regular basis. Because I think where time travel is concerned, you can do what you like, really. I think all bets are off when it comes to time travel. But that's great. Um, do you have any examples from your own experience of stuff that's made you throw something at the TV? I'll share an example from Star Trek because we seem to be focusing on Star Trek and Doctor Who. And this is from the first film in the Star Trek reboot. So 2009. Essentially, at one point, Kirk is stranded on an ice planet and he's chased by a predator that looks very appropriate to the environment. It's sort of a yeti. It's got fangs. It's got heavy fur. It clearly has some sort of fat layer. It's essentially designed along the lines of an ape-like polar bear. Excellent. No problems with that at all. And at the last minute, spoilers again, I know we're 15 years on now. Nonetheless, at the last moment, that predator is snapped up by a larger predator which takes the form of a sort of arthropod. Now, why on earth would a giant insect be the apex predator in an Arctic environment? 
There is no reason for that. First off, there's a reason arthropods don't get gigantic in the first place. The physics of the body structure simply doesn't allow them to get beyond a certain size without struggling to move or collapsing in on themselves or being unable to support their own functions of life. And on top of that, how does it not freeze to death? It doesn't have proper blood, it has no ability to thermoregulate, there's no fur, there's nothing protecting it from the cold. This insect, well, first off, would never have evolved, but if it were dropped on this planet by an external force, would last about five minutes. I've seen you talk before about um, purported ecosystems or potential ecosystems on planets with different gravities, with different atmospheres and so on. So, yeah, I assume the planet there, the ice planet, has something very similar to Earth and therefore similar rules would apply. When it comes to ecosystems, credit where it's due again here to James Cameron and the Avatar film. The world building that's done in that is great, I think. They take a lot of time, some would say far too much time, looking at the ecosystems on the planet there, whose name escapes me for the moment. Can you remember the name of the planet in Avatar? Pandora, apparently. Pandora, yeah. And apparently it's a moon. Oh, of course, it's a moon around a large, like, gas giant, isn't it? When you look at the creatures that appear in that, I think that's great. I think that's really well put together and well thought out. And in many ways, you look at the things on there and you think, maybe this is a bit like an Attenborough documentary about the pre-Cambrian era on Earth. So you can perhaps see that on this very Earth-like body, similar creatures would emerge. Credit where it's due there for creating new ecosystem. Absolutely. And it's not just about the writing, it's about the entire concept. So credit also has to go to things like the concept artists and people like set designers for making a world that is so immersive and believable while adhering in some ways to scientific principles. I do want to say thank you for mentioning the Precambrian and I'll add in the Cambrian. Because that is a piece of advice that I often give to people looking to do plausible creature design in science fiction. Look to the Precambrian and the Cambrian, the fantastical range of creatures that were in existence then are pretty much unbelievable if you didn't know that they were real and have fossil evidence of them. There are creatures who've got five eyes. There are creatures that have got hose noses. There are creatures who have legs on the top and the bottom. If you need a plausible alien, look at the environment those things existed in and look at the range of designs in which they existed. Honestly, it's like one of those flip books where you can match different tops to middles and bottoms. Build your alien that way, and it's a shortcut to scientific plausibility. Absolutely. It's going to be a realistic thing you would imagine you would genuinely find in those environments. I think there is such a, a discipline as astrobiology nowadays. I'm sure NASA employ astrobiologists. They probably spend their whole day locked in darkened rooms, drawing diagrams of European fish, and things like that, you know, things that they might find underneath the ice sheets on Jovian and Saturnian moons. This sounds like an amazing job. Where do I sign up? Oh, we have to ask NASA, I think, on that one. Or James Cameron. I think, really, um, we've gone through some good. We've gone through some bad. But as I said, I think it's in the eye of the beholder in many ways. You and I tend to look at these things with a scientific point of view. 
Um, I tend to be quite forgiving sometimes. Um, a lot of my friends, as with yourself, are writers. And you can understand why some people would say, well, let's not let scientific accuracy stand in the way of a good story. So come up with a pseudoscientific thing would be my answer to that. You know, something that sounds good. And that will, you know, that'll, that'll keep me happy anyway. Probably wouldn't keep every scientist happy, but it would keep me happy. I think there's some value in having science or at the very least pseudoscience in a story because it makes the world of the story a bit more believable and therefore just a bit more immersive. Obviously, it's a different scenario if you're talking about something like fantasy where there's no intent to be believable. But I think a little bit of plausibility helps in science fiction. And it doesn't hurt to be educational either. I agree. There is uh, one, only one story I've seen that bridges the gap between science and magic. And it's actually a Doctor Who novel. I think it's called The Magician's Apprentice or something like that. Um, and it's the first Doctor, Susan, Ian and Barbara. So right back to the early days of Doctor Who. And they land the TARDIS on a planet where magic appears real. So people can cast spells and things really happen. But of course, the doctor comes to the rescue and there's the world's most fabulous pseudoscientific answer to all of this. The entire planet is saturated in nanobots, which some of the population can control with their minds. So when they cast spells, what they're really doing is directing nanobots to do these strange disappearings or changing of one thing into another and all that. I thought that was really clever. I thought that was that was a really great sort of let's make a magic story into a pseudoscientific one. So that still remains one of my favourite Doctor Who novels ever. I think it was written by Christopher Bullis. And it really does lend some credence to the famous Arthur C. Clarke quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Absolutely. Yeah, he was a great prophet, wasn't he, as well? I think to end on this, we really should say that perhaps being open-minded is best in as much as, yeah, we like to see a good piece of real science that's educating people about it in science fiction. I certainly like to see some pseudoscience that gets my mind going about possibilities and intrigues me. I don't like to see stuff that's not explained properly. But does that get in the way of a good story? Some places maybe it does, and some places maybe it doesn't. I guess scientists don't run the show when it comes to science fiction. Maybe we should have a, a say in it. But it is, after all, the writers, showrunners in science fiction who have the final say, and it probably should stay there. Set Phasers to Stun is hosted by Mick Schubert with music by Sam Watts. You can find Mick at MickSchubert.com and Sam at SamWatts.com. And you can find Set Phasers to Stun on every major podcast platform, as well as at setphaserstostun.substack.com.